Today's Bible readings are taken from Psalm chapter 13 and 2 Peter chapter 3, which can be found in your leaflets. Beginning with Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. The second reading is taken from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Well, thanks, Alyssa. Thanks, everyone, for following along. If you are following along in your Bibles, which you've brought with you, or in the service outline which you were given, please do stay there, because that's where we're going to be today, Psalm 13, and then right at the end, in that little snippet from to Peter. Uh, If you are someone who likes to follow along a sermon outline, if you find that kind of scaffolding helpful for you, there is a brief sermon outline there in your leaflet, and I encourage you to write anything down in there or just let it help you keep track of your thoughts. But before we get into this really deeply moving psalm, let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that this psalm tells us that we can take every possible emotion to you. There is nothing that we feel that you can't take. And so, Father, for those of us suffering here today, for those of us caring for those suffering, Father, we pray that we might take those big feelings to you, those big situations to you. And yet, Father, we pray that like David the psalmist, we might also always trust in your unfailing love because we know that you have been good to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having said everything we've said about the theme for today's service, I have a confession to make. I am what you might call a chronic optimist. I'm a chronic optimist. I'm the kind of guy who every cloud, it has a silver lining. In fact, I never met a cloud I couldn't find a silver lining for. I'm that guy who, when it's pouring with rain and the kids can't go outside and the washing is still on the line, I will say, well, do you know what? It'll probably be fine tomorrow because it'll all got itself out of its system today. I think I said that yesterday. How wrong I was. I am that kind of chronic optimist who can always see the good in things. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Monty Python's uh, Holy Grail, that old film from the 1970s. Really funny. There's this great scene where there's a knight and he approaches another knight and one knight just to completely hacks off all the limbs of the black knight. But the black knight, he just won't admit it. He'll chop off one arm and the black knight will keep fighting. He'll say, why are you still fighting? You've got your arm off. And he'll say, this, this is just a flesh wound. Eventually, he hacks off all of his limbs and he's just sort of sitting there as a stump on the ground saying, come on, are you scared? I am like that black knight. I am the perennial chronic optimist. And I've just got to say, I think there are, in my defence, there are some advantages to this. I think I'm generally 
fun to be around and I'm generally happy. Optimists have consistently shown to be more effective leaders, leaders and happier people. So I feel like I do have that going in my favour. But there is a downside to my optimism, or at least my version of it. And it's a real one. I find it hard, sometimes very hard, to admit when something has gone wrong. Like a lot of optimists, I have a tendency to downplay suffering. And it drives Susie, who is an optimist, but much more realistic one than me, mad. <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> it's a bad habit. Because, you know, the Bible's advice in the face of suffering isn't to downplay it or to pretend that it's not real. It's not to admit that it is real, but to keep a stiff upper lip, mustn't grumble, we say. You know, the Bible's advice in the face of suffering isn't even to say, count your blessings, though there is a time to count your blessings when you're being blessed. No, when you're suffering, the Bible says it's okay to admit that you're suffering, not count your blessings at that particular moment and cry out to God in distress. In other words, it's okay to lament. If you've just joined us today, we've been going through the book of Psalms over January and we've been calling this series, All of Life is Here. Because in this book, every human experience and emotion can be found. It's a collection of songs that teaches us how to be wise, how to live life God's way and submit to His rule. It teaches us how to praise, how majestic God's name is in all the earth and how good it is to praise Him. But it also teaches us how to lament when life is going badly and God doesn't seem that praiseworthy, perhaps doesn't seem there at all. Maybe that's how God seems to you today. Maybe it's how He seemed to you for a while. That's what this psalm is about, lament, and we're going to get into it now. And as Naomi already said, it's in three sections. In verses 1 to 2, there's a question. In verses 3 to 4, there's demand. And in verses 5 to 6, there's a statement. First, the question, how long, O Lord? This psalm was written by David, Israel's king, in about 1000 BC, and it's written for his director of music. Look there at the italicized heading there, which is part of the original psalm. For the director of music, a psalm of David. It's a psalm that seems to be written at a time of great pain in David's life, when he was surrounded by enemies on the brink of death and feels like God has abandoned him. And so he asks God the question, how long? That's the first question he asks, how long, God, how long will you forget me? Look at verse 1, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You see, David is suffering and he feels like God has forgotten him. Note, David doesn't ask whether God has forgotten him. To David here, it definitely feels like he has. His only question is how long he'll forget him for. Will it be a short time or long? How long, O Lord, will you forget? And it often feels like that that God has forgotten us, when we are suffering. 
C.S. Lewis was a famous academic and author who lived in Cambridge and Oxford in England in the middle of the 20th century. After becoming a Christian in his 30s, he spent much of his life defending the Christian faith, including defending it against objections to it based on the existence of suffering. But what Lewis found easy to deal with in theory, he found much harder to deal with personally. He was a bachelor for nearly all of his life, but when he was in his 50s, Lewis fell in love and he married a lovely woman, Joy. But after only a few years, she got sick with cancer and died. And Lewis found this devastating for his faith. Soon after he died, he decided to write a journal in four notepads that he found lying around, which he later published as a short book, A Grief Observed. And in it, he wrote of how he felt completely forgotten by God in the experience. Listen to how he describes it. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. The year before Lewis became a Christian, he had written to a friend that praying to God felt like posting letters to a non-existent address. Now, at the end of his life, and as the most famous Christian apologist of the 20th century, he felt exactly the same way. Now, of course, God hadn't forgotten Lewis, just as he hadn't forgotten David. God can't and doesn't forget anyone. But it sometimes feels like he does. And God, by allowing this psalm into his book, the Bible, tells us it's okay to feel that way at times. We're not sinning if we feel like God has forgotten us sometimes. We can't end there, but it's okay to be there for a while and tell God that that's how you feel. So kids, if you're drawing on your chalkboards now, why don't you draw a big question mark or write a question that you've got for God? That's the first question David asks, how long will you forget me? The second question he asks is, how long will I feel depressed? Look at verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? You see, David turns from something that's going on in God's mind, his forgetfulness of him, to something going on in David's mind, his constant inner turmoil. He says here that he's constantly wrestling with his thoughts. He's anxious. And he constantly has sorrow in his heart. He's sad. Here is a first-hand account in the Bible of what it feels like to suffer a period, presumably a long period, of mental illness. And his question is, how long is God going to let this go on for? You know, for every Christian I've ever met who's suffered from mental illness, it's their question too. How long will you forget me? 
How long will I feel depressed? And finally, how long will my enemy win against me? Look there at the base of verse 2. How long will my enemy triumph over me? You know, it's hard to know the exact context of this, but we know that David did have extended periods where his enemies had the upper hand over him. They were plotting to kill him and often literally had him on the run when he was fleeing in the desert from those who would overthrow him. And what David is asking God here is he just wants to know when this is going to end, when he's going to stop being treated like a punching bag. In just two verses, the psalm builds up a picture of a person who feels completely besieged on all sides. From above, God, who's ignoring him. From within, his mind, which is anxious and sad. And from around, his enemies, who are constantly winning over him. And his question to God is, how long are you going to let all of this keep happening to me? Now, I should say that David does end this psalm on a note of hope. But not before his questions turn into a demand, look at me and answer. We see that in our second point. Look at verses 3 and 4. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Having asked God a series of questions, David now effectively says to God, look at me when I'm talking to you. Because if you don't, I'm going to die here. If you don't keep the lights on for me, I will die and then the bad guys will have won. David turns from questioning God to actually making demands of him. Don't forget me, look at me and answer me. When are you going to save me from all this mess? I mean, it's amazing that God allows this sort of thing into his own book, isn't it? And we've already seen in just the few Psalms that we've looked at this summer, how big God is. He's the source of all life, Psalm 1. He's the king to be obeyed, Psalm 2. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, David has just said in Psalm 8, which we looked at last week. God is big in the Psalms. By contrast, it's also made clear how tiny we as humans are. We are. We look up at the stars, dwarfed by the universe and the God who made it, and we ask, what is mankind for that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. God is big, humans are small. The Psalms couldn't be clearer. And yet here is David, just a few Psalms on, effectively yelling at God and saying to him, look at me when I'm talking to you. Give me an answer. How long will you let this go on for? And God not only doesn't strike David down with a thunderbolt, he actively includes these words in his own autobiography, the Bible. He takes David's harsh complaint and actively publishes it in his own book. Why does God do that? Because, you know, questioning God and even demanding things of Him is not faithlessness, especially when you're suffering. Faithlessness is suffering and then turning away from God 
abandoning God as a source of help in your suffering and concluding that He really doesn't care or isn't there. Now, the person who is faithless in suffering isn't the one who rails against God. It's the one who doesn't even come to God with their suffering in the first place because they've concluded there's no point. Now, the one who is faithful in suffering is the one who is confused and angry but still knows to take that confusion and anger to God, not away from Him, because they know that God is still the only one that can help them, even though they don't know how. I think it's a bit like this. When Dan, our eldest son, was very young, we lived in a house in Tasmania with a lovely long corridor that ran the length of the house. And sometimes we'd play a game together where I would pretend that I was a monster and I would chase him down the corridor. Now, most of the time, Dan loved this and ran down the corridor laughing his head off. But sometimes, mid-game, it would get a bit too much for Dan and he'd get scared. And the laughter would suddenly turn to tears, as it so often does with small children. But the interesting thing was, when Dan got scared like that, He didn't run even faster away from me down the corridor. Instead, what he would do is, in tears, he'd turn around and run back to me and give me a hug. Why? Because he knew that whatever was going on with Daddy, the best chance of finding safety was running back to him. He knew that the only one big enough to save him from Daddy was Daddy. And that's what's happening here with David. He knows that the only one big enough to save him from God is God. So, rather than turn away from God in his suffering, he trusts God enough to turn to him and ask him some questions and demand some answers. And the fact that these demands are addressed to God proves that David still trusts him. He's confused and angry, but he still trusts him. You see, we as Christians must never be holier than the Bible. We must never think we can't do what the Bible says we can do. You see, there are times, aren't there, when we're suffering and we want to ask God some tough questions and demand that He answer them. But then, in the next breath, we think that we shouldn't do that because that's not how you're supposed to talk to God. He is so big, we are so small. But God says here, no, you can talk to me like this. It's okay. I can take it. I'd much rather you came to me with your problems than not come to me. It shows that you still trust me, even though you don't know what I'm doing. You know, and maybe that's you at the moment. You're suffering, whatever that suffering might be. And you are past the questioning phase now. You're at the demanding phase. You want God to look at you and tell you why this is happening and to make it stop. And you know what? You can. It's okay to do that. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to make demands. It's okay to run back up the corridor to God in tears. Because it shows that you still think that He's your Father. What you must not do is run away from God with those questions and demands. 
thinking he can't answer them. It's okay to let your suffering make you get heated with God. What it's not okay is to let it make you grow cold towards God. That really is despair. And there's no coming back from that. It's just an endless corridor from there on in. Well, David questions God and he demands that he answers him. But he does it because he still trusts him. But as we wrap up today, that begs the question, why? Everything is going so wrong for David. Why does he still trust him to come to him? Because of what God has done for him in the past. You see, after the question and then the demand comes a statement, I trust in your unfailing love. Look at verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Despite everything that's happening to David, he still trusts that God loves him and will save him. Now, it's not easy for him to do this. You note there in the psalm, it's not, I'm suffering so I trust in your unfailing love. No, what does it say? It says, I'm suffering but I trust in your unfailing love. That is, despite everything I'm going through, I still trust you, even though you're not currently doing anything to help me, or at least that's how it feels. So why does he trust God when God's not currently doing anything to help him? Because he's helped David in the past, and he remembers that. Look at verse 6 again. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. He remembers how God has saved him in the past and he clings to that memory in the present to remind him that God will save him in the future. Now, I know absolutely nothing about flying a plane, but I'm told that when you're a pilot, you can actually do a surprising amount of navigation by sight. You can look out your cockpit window and rely on what you see, much like we do when we're driving a car. But when the weather closes in, when the fog wraps around you and you can't see anything, then you've got to rely on your instruments. You can still fly, but you've got to rely on the dials in your cockpit, the altimeter and the compass and the gyroscope to tell you where you are in the outside world. You can't see, so you've got to fly by your instruments. And sometimes we have to do that in the Christian life. We can't see what God is doing in our life. So we have to fly by our instruments. Remember what God has done for us in the past and rely on that to help us trust that He'll look after us in the future. You think to yourself, life is bad now and I can't see much of God in it. But I remember that He died for me, so He must love me. And I remember that time in the past when things were bad and how he got me through that. And so even though I can't see anything now, I'm going to tap the compass of my Bible and look at the altimeter of my past and trust that he won't let me crash. And you know, as Christians, we can actually do this even more than David could. Because we have seen the ultimate example of God caring for us. Jesus dying on the cross and rising to life for us. 
And so when life seems hard and it feels like God has forgotten us, we can remember that and tell ourselves He hasn't. And when we look at our suffering, not just our own suffering, but suffering in the world, and we ask ourselves, how long, Lord, when are you going to come back and fix this? Because to be honest, you are looking pretty slow. We can know that God isn't being slow, that He hasn't forgotten us. He's just being patient, patient with a world that's rejected Him, but that wants to save it and offers that salvation through Jesus. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the Psalms show us that we can be honest with God when we suffer. We can question God and even demand that He answer us. But they also tell us that even when we don't feel like God loves us, He does. And that we can know that from what He's done in the past and what He will do in the future. He hasn't forgotten us. He's not being slow. He's just being patient. And one day He'll save us. And that's great news for those of us who are still stuck in the mess of life now, asking, how long, Lord? So let's come to this Lord in prayer now. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we take all of our suffering and our grief and our questions, and even our demands to you. And we do that because we know that in all of our confusion, you still know what's going on, and you still love us. And we can know that because we've seen what you've done in the past. We've seen you die for us in Jesus. We've seen the ways you've got us out of trouble in the past. And so we can trust that you can do that for us now and in the future. And ultimately in the future, when you return and wipe away every tear from every eye. Father, for those of us who are particularly feeling downcast, worried, depressed, Father, we pray that that might be real comfort for us now. We pray that we might cling to it and run to you and not away from you. Because you are a God in whom we can take great heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.